Hello and welcome to Canaan Rinse Sound of Play 58. Every Wednesday in Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favorite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. Joining me, Ryan Heyman, in Sound of Play 58 is Matthew Tusseroni from the Major Third YouTube channel. Hey, how's it going? Very good. Thanks for joining us today. Mm, definitely. No, I love talking about video game music. So, <laughs> Indeed. You were uh, recommended by one of our listeners, Papa Pichu. Mm-hmm who um, I guess is a fan of your channel and a listener of yeah. ours and thought that uh, we'd make kind of a nice matchup for an episode. And uh, yeah, I hadn't heard of your channel before, but I went over to look up some episodes and they're, they're really interesting. It's, mm-hmm. it's very similar to what we're doing here. And so listeners of this show will probably get a lot out of that as well. But I, I do like that your channel goes into a little bit more of the uh, technical aspects of the music. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have a background in in music theory or anything like that? Or is this kind of an enthusiast thing? Um, I mean, a little of both. Uh, Mm -hmm. I grew up playing music, started playing piano when I was like seven or something. Mm -hmm. Um, I played in a lot of different like ensembles and stuff. And in college, I minored in music, but I always Mm -hmm. loved, um, I always loved theory and kind of breaking down, um, breaking down music and, and things like that. So that's, that's always been my, uh, uh, thing I really enjoy doing a lot. So I wanted to kind of share that with the world because I love video game music too. And it seems like you also have a little bit of a background in the uh, technical side of programming for the different consoles. Yes, a little bit. Um, not, I, I couldn't, I can like break open an NES and tell you what mm-hmm. all's in there, but, um, I love, reading up and learning about the technology that in these old retro systems and how they made music within those limitations. 
And uh, there's a great program called FamiTracker that's mm-hmm. incredibly authentic to the NES's sound chip. So I've made music doing that and played around with it a lot and learned a ton about how that music was mm-hmm. made. It's interesting as more games these days are trying to, I guess, artificially mm-hmm. kind of constrain themselves to the uh, the limits of what the older systems were able to do. We saw, I think, Retro City Rampage was the first mm-hmm. one that immediately springs to mind for me, and then uh, uh, Shovel Knight with you know a little bit of a uh, little bit more elbow room than mm-hmm. Retro City Rampage gave itself. Mm-hmm. But it, it's interesting to see that people are. Uh, kind of going back to these old mediums and uh, and kind of painting within those cells. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's interesting, and uh, the whole limitations usually create more creativity because you're not stifled by the amount of choice that you have if you can just mm-hmm. do anything. I mean, that even goes back to like the Baroque era. Some of the mm-hmm. songs they said it is specifically a piece for two voices, so the whole mm-hmm. song is just two things. It's one of those interesting things that kind of goes back further than you would think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how would you describe your channel? Just a quick little elevator pitch for people who haven't heard of it before. Uh, well, Major Third is mm-hmm. a YouTube channel, and I was about to say every week or every month. That's not true. I'm not great <laughs> at about regularly making episodes. But in each episode, um, is usually about five to ten minutes long, and... It talks about usually a game or a composer or um, a musical element, Um, talks about whatever that thing is and then breaks it down, gives lots of examples, and uh, hopefully by the end of it, gives you a greater appreciation for whatever that thing is. So, like, for example, one of the ones I love to do is uh, breaking down a specific specific song so, like, one I did was for uh, Shovel Knight, for Strike the Earth. Mm-hmm. And I looked at, you know, the song, the game, the song in the game, Jake Kaufman, the composer, his background, and broke down, you know, sometimes track by track within the song and said, hey, this is what this sound is. This is where the sound has been mm-hmm. used. This is, you know, how it builds into the greater piece as a whole. And that's especially interesting as the older hardware, as we said, you know, has mm-hmm. a limited range of sounds that it was able to produce. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you were able to, or we can kind of look at various examples and um, kind of compare and contrast how, you know, square waves and triangle waves and all these things were, were used using the same, you know, sound chips and all it, mm-hmm. to different effect and different pieces. Yeah. Let's dive into that first track that we played yes. on our way in here. Brinstar. So, yeah, this is from Super Metroid. You want to take us through that one? Super Metroid, it's funny. I grew up with the SNES a little bit, but I actually didn't grow up with Super Metroid. I didn't really discover it until later. But it's one of my, definitely one of my favorite games at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's such a fun game just to, to play it through and, you know, you feel like you learn new ways to go through it every time you play it. I love the music in it because it captures so much of what the first game is trying to do and then just extrapolates it and Mm. makes it more atmospheric and more ambient. And this song in particular uh, is great because it just tension keeps building. And then after Mm -hmm. you already know, like the piano part, whenever you know that the piano part is going to come in and you just keep waiting and it just kind of (laughs) keeps building up and just kind of keeps building up until you finally hear it. It's great. It's an interesting sound. It's very appropriately alien, I would say, mm-hmm. because the and and you see, you're going to school me on all of the 
<laughs> musical terminology. I have ways of like kind of getting around mm-hmm. the musical terms that I uh, that you could probably say in like one or two words. But yeah, maybe. the uh, kind of the sustained resonance of each of the notes takes a really hard reset at each measure. And that's um, more apparent towards the beginning of the song when it's just those kind of background chords more than anything else. But it's interesting because they're the type of notes that you would expect to kind of sustain and fade out naturally, but mm-hmm. they, uh, um, they almost go completely silent as they lead into the next note in a really kind of mm-hmm. unnatural way. Mm-hmm. Almost like when you reverse a cymbal crash and it comes to that very distinct head. And yeah. It just yeah. stops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it just, that's a really like a kind of unnerving underbelly to the entire mm-hmm. piece. No, it's, uh, the thing that the SNES really added, obviously mm-hmm. you could do a lot more, uh, sounds cause it's sample based instead of just being frequencies like the NES was, but you could also do reverb and that's mm-hmm. one thing you hear. Oh, that, and that's what you mean by the, the sustained right. sound is reverb. Um, but the SNES, usually whenever you hear bad SNES music, it's just completely drowned in reverb mm-hmm. and it's just sounds like, it sounds like someone's playing something in the middle of a huge room mm-hmm. and it's yeah. just, and just bouncing everywhere. But it's done really well in Super Metroid because it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's supposed to feel isolated and like you are in a big empty area. <laughs> right. So it fits perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting how, um, I don't want to say the background music sounds muddy, but it does sound mm-hmm. like you're kind of listening to it through a wall. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is very kind of uh, kind of quiet and subdued, mm-hmm. um, almost kind of grown over and reclaimed by nature in a way. Mm-hmm. And then it's uh, such a distinct shift in the sound of the music when the um, that like really super clear piano kind of breaks mm-hmm. into the mix. So an interesting piece there. Definitely. And that is uh, composed by uh, Kenji Yamamoto and Minako Hamano. All right, and this next track is one that I'm sure uh, many of our listeners will be familiar with, if just from its various remixes over the year. Uh, But (laughs) we take you back to the original incarnation of uh, one of the themes from Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island. Uh, Do you want to introduce this one, Matthew? (laughs) It's it's such a it's just it's a fun it's such a fun Mm -hmm. track. Because it shows the wide, the wide range of things you can do with the S and the S mm. that we hear Metroid, which is all very serious and very dark. And this one's just goofy and fun. It's great. <laughs> I like the, uh, the lead track. This is Athletic by Koji Kondo. Mm-hmm. Um, the lead track is uh, it cuts such a distinctive melody, um, something really earwormish and really memorable. But the background track, if you really listen to it, because it's quiet in this one, mm-hmm. um, but if you really listen to it, it feels so like lackadaisical and almost like it isn't paying any attention to what's happening in the rest of the song. Yeah. I mean, it never sounds bad, but it just always sounds like it's just off doing its own thing, like mm-hmm. a kid playing in the backyard while the parents are inside having a conversation or something. Mm-hmm. Um, such a interesting... And then I like when all the lead tracks drop out in this uh, nice little bridge that comes around a couple times during this uh, this loop. It reminds me a lot of Conker's Bad Fur Day. And I think that's because they're both that. drawing from... Like those old cartoons, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like the Merry Melodies and mm-hmm. the um, early Disney stuff. And mm-hmm. yeah, just that kind of era of... I, I can't even really point to a specific time period. I want to say like maybe 19... I mean, like the, like the, like the 20s, 30s, yeah. 40s. I mean, the, the <laughs> style is... Um, 
is very uh, Dixieland jazz. If you look mm, up Dixieland yeah, yeah. jazz, that's like the the oldest kind of jazz from like <laughs> the twenties. That's this is very reminiscent of that. Mm. And of course, as I mentioned before, this song has been remixed in, oh, in various yeah. Smash Bros. and future Mario adaptations. And over the years, uh, Yoshi has, starting in Super Mario World 1, has developed his own kind of distinctive musical sound. Mm. In the very beginning, in his first appearance, it was just kind of his presence was denoted by the presence of bongos in mm. the musical track. And then over the years, it has evolved in many ways to include a chorus of silly Yoshi voices, which have come in um, probably in Yoshi's Island and then mm. amplified in Yoshi's story. And, um, and, and then very different musical uh, traits in uh, Yoshi's Woolly World and some of the newer Yoshi games. This is Athletic by Koji Kondo. This next track is a request from the forum from Todinho, who says, Really cool post by Yacht Club on Twitter showing how Shovel Knight would have sounded on a Famicom. And yeah, this is an interesting one. This is mm -hmm. the main theme from Shovel Knight, a chipwave port. Uh, the original composition was by Jay Kaufman, and then this remix of sorts was done by Trojan Horse. And it, uh, it goes back to uh, one of the things that we mentioned when we were talking about The Legend of Zelda <laughs> 1 on uh, the Kane and Rinse podcast was how different the soundtrack sounds, oh, whether you yeah. uh, buy the Japanese or the American, or the American versions. one, yeah. And um, you know, you'll notice a whole bunch of different sounds that were bells and kind of like lightly. kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds that I would associate more with kind of like early MIDI than... Um, the strict chip tune sound or Sega Genesis. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's yeah. Very Sega Genesis <laughs> sounding. 
Yeah, and um, a lot of that is due to the uh, Famicom being a disc-based system, so they have a little bit more mm. room to experiment in that way. Um, but I've always preferred the sound of the NES. I think it's just a little bit more, I don't want to say substantial, um, it's a little meatier and a little bit more consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, there are still some uh, chiptune-sounding instruments in the Famicom songs, and they kind of contrast a little bit too much for me with the more MIDI-sounding instruments. Um, they don't come together quite as nicely, but that mm-hmm. might just be because, you know, the... Because it's what you're uh, used to hearing. Right, yeah. Western I, NESs are what I, I grew up with. I ask myself that a lot whenever I listen mm. to the, the other versions, because I think, well, it technically... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I literally mean technically. It technically is better because... Yeah. The, the thing with the, the Famicom disk system is it had all the NES instruments, but it also had an additional channel mm, okay. where you could um, you could basically create a wave, a waveform instead of just being a square or a triangle. Mm-hmm. You could create a waveform. And so people could be creative and do lots of different things with the waveforms and make those kind of weird bell sounds. But... Mm-hmm. We're, you know, we're just not used to hearing them that way. So, yeah. Shovel Knight itself actually has a different kind of weird Japanese only sound to it because it's using the uh, VRC6 add-on, which adds, um, it's more, it's more strict than the FDS is. FDS meaning Famicom Disk System. Uh, But the VRC six is something that late NES games did use like Castlevania three. If you look up Castlevania three's Japanese release, it has, Mm -hmm. it sounds similar to Shovel Knight in a lot of ways. Um, so, uh, it is still something that, you know, it's, it's pushing it, but it is something that did exist in the time of the NES just later. And so from what I understand, that is a uh, kind of musical expansion chip that's built into yes. the cartridges. Yes, right? it was an okay. expansion chip. So you still had the, the core um, four, I guess, kind of five channels for mm-hmm. the NES. And then you got three more, two that were similar mm-hmm. to the, the main square channel and then a, uh, a sawtooth channel, which was completely mm-hmm. different. Um, and the way that Jay Kaufman uses those is incredible in Shovel Knight, uh, but... But that's not what we're here to talk about today. Talk about this. This is a really cool, cool uh, version of it um, that you would have been more like what you would have actually heard on a Famicom. Yeah. um, I I guess grounding the rest of the conversation here in this particular uh, version of the song, it's interesting. It's a lot different, but I I think one thing that leaves me wanting a little bit more is that it feels very uh, kind of narrowly mixed. It feels Mm -hmm. very quiet and uh not quite as expansive as the Mm -hmm. original mix of the song which i love the uh, there's a lot of um really nice stereo dynamics going on in the um shovelware or shovel sorry shovelware not shovelware actually it's a really good game (laughs) oh boy (laughs) i don't want to make any enemies um the shovel knight soundtrack Mm. so this one i'm not as much of a fan of how it's mastered and i don't know if that speaks to the uh, the way that the uh, Famicom would have handled it or whether that was just this specific mix or whether it was just it being uploaded to YouTube mm. and that not being the perfect way to listen to uh, <laughs> to video game music in a lot of ways. Um, do you have any insight as to uh, why this sounds a little bit different than I'd be expecting maybe? Uh, well, the, the biggest way that uh, Jake Kaufman uses those extra tracks in mm. Shovel Knight is to just bolster up the core mm. tracks. 
because the um, whenever people use those extra tracks, like in Castlevania three, it sounds kind of weird because mm-hmm. we're not used to it. So a lot of what he did in Shovel Knight is just use those extra tracks to be like echoes, mm-hmm. just to be quieter versions of the main tracks and things like that. So whenever you take those out, then it's it sounds a little more empty. Yeah. Um, so that's that's nothing on the person that that did the port. It's it's kind of just the nature of how the song was composed. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I've done a few versions of songs kind of like that. Like oh, I fun. did, I did one that was uh, if Green Hill Zone was done on an SNES. Mm-hmm. That was that was a lot of fun to do. Just looking at how <laughs> different the two systems were when it came to music. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, but anyways, before we get too distracted, let's yeah, go ahead sorry. and lead into the uh, main theme, Chipwave Port, uh, remixed by Trojan Horse from, well, from-ish, Shovel Knight, based mm-hmm. on Shovel Knight. Austin Wintery, um, well, composed by Austin mm-hmm. Wintery, who uh, listeners will be familiar with from the Journey soundtrack, as well as um, the more recently released Abzu, mm-hmm. and um, also a few more that you might not be expecting to find in his discography anyways, like uh, like Monaco. I was kind of surprised to see that there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that is Monaco, What's Yours is Mine, I believe, was the subtitle. Yeah, that's that, that subtitle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's a, that's a very different soundtrack, but that's very not, different. I love not that what soundtrack, we're here to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> um, you want to take us through this particular track? Yeah, so this is uh, Little Did They Sleep from the Banner Saga, and uh, the Banner Saga is it's another one of those weird games that I feel like someone made a game specifically for me <laughs> because <laughs> it's like, it's like the Oregon trail meets final fantasy tactics meets Ralph Bakshi mm. because the, the animation in it is 
really nice. It's like rotoscoped, so it's it has it looks kind of like um like the non Disney seventies and eighties cartoons, like the the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings. Mm, uh, yeah, and the music is amazing. Uh, I love this soundtrack so much. Um, and this particular track uh, is one of the many tracks you hear whenever you're um, in the world, moving from from place to place. And uh, it just has this sense of um, like a little bit of a, a very tiny glimmer of hope in an otherwise really desolate and, and desperate world. And that's the entire game is that. So it it's it's perfect. I love this song and I love this soundtrack. The song is uh, very dominated, I would say, by its percussion track. Yes. Uh, would that be a, a timpani in there that's doing mm-hmm. it's that? Definitely, it's okay. definitely a timpani. Yeah, uh, um, which I, I guess would represent um, almost kind of like a, a, what is it, a tone painting? Is that what they call it? Where it's yeah, a, where like the, the music represents yeah, what yeah. is in what's happening. Uh, yeah, because a lot yeah, of the because, game is based on marching and traveling across mm-hmm. the countryside, um, and so it would, you know, make sense that this like big plodding uh, percussive track would be underlying the music. It's 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 a good fit. Cool. So this is "Little Did They Sleep" by Austin Wintry from the Banner Saga. This next track is a fun little uh, Lucas Arts double fine track from mm-hmm. um, from their, I guess, a resident composer Peter McConnell. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, now, you did a whole video about Peter McConnell's, I guess, backstory and some of mm -hmm. his compositions. And uh, mm -hmm. do you want to give us just a little bit of history on who this man is? Mm -hmm. Well, he's uh, he's been uh, worked with LucasArts and now works a lot with Double Fine uh, for a very long time, like going back to the, the early 90s. Like he did a lot of the music on. Um, he worked with a couple other guys, uh, Clint Bajakian and, oh man, I can't remember the other guy's name. I'll look it up. But he worked with a few other guys in, uh, like the original Secret of Monkey Island and those games, um, Full Throttle. It's Michael Land would have been on that soundtrack. Michael Land, that's the other one. Mm -hmm. That's one, Michael Land. But he, he worked back then and just continued to work with, uh, uh, Tim Schafer specifically on a lot yeah. of different, his games. He's worked on, like he worked on Broken Age. He worked on Brutal Legend a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really, I'm a big fan of his and I'm a huge fan of this game. Like this is mm -hmm. one of my favorite games. Uh, the track is uh, Campaneros by Peter McConnell from Grim Fandango. Uh, and the game itself came out in 1998, but uh, the remaster version came out just, what, a year or two ago? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, almost 20 years after its original release. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. A long time. Uh, and it was kind of unavailable for a very long time there. Yes. Uh, it wouldn't run well on modern computers, and so it was kind of a uh, a curiosity, a forgotten relic. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I didn't play the game until um, I was... It was before the remaster, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I really wanted to play it because I love those old adventure games, and a lot of people say that this is the best of the old school yeah. adventure games. And I, I there's personally think so too. Although I kind of, I don't know. I kind of think secret of monkey Island is probably a little better, but mm. I really like grim Fandango because I just love the world of it. Uh, it takes place in like a Dia de los Muertos kind of world. Mm -hmm. And you play as basically paper, the, like the paper mache skeletons that you see. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and most of the tracks in the game are very jazzy, uh, very film noir inspired. Uh, but this one is one you hear whenever you're seeing one of the festivals during the Day of the Dead, but in the world of the dead. And it's mm -hmm. like this mariachi band uh, that plays whenever you're walking through like the town square. Yeah, this is a really nice recording. It's very clear. It's very present. Um, yes. That's actually the one of the things that... Um, I was aware of Peter McConnell's work from uh, Psychonauts. is probably the first yes. game that I heard where he was like the like lead, maybe even soul composer. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember that soundtrack being distinctive, but when I would sit down to like listen to it by itself, um, other than a couple tracks, which I thought were uh, rather brilliant, um, mm -hmm. my, my favorite of which being the one that plays in the background of, uh, is it Boyd who turns out to be obsessed with the milkman while he's kind of scribbling oh, on the walls. Yeah, There's the this like really conspiracy. weird, that's like a... demented track mm -hmm. that plays in the background of that. That's like the perfect um, accompaniment for uh, this guy who's just out of his mind. And mm -hmm. um, anyways, uh, right. The Psychonauts soundtrack overall, I was kind of like half and half on, but I was mm -hmm. really impressed by the original compositions that he did for Brutal Legend and mm -hmm. in particular, there were a few really nice, like clear, resonant guitar tracks that yes. would, um, and acoustic guitar tracks, I should mention, yeah. um, not even electric guitar tracks that would play whenever you scope out uh, points of interest in the world. And then just these like really slow, haunting melodies that uh, are just meant to kind of underlie the mood of the world. 
Mm. And I think even though they aren't necessarily like metal sounding in and of themselves. You don't remember those. You remember the, you know, Iron Maiden coming right, screaming right. in. But <laughs> but they add so much to the to the world yeah, and, yeah. and fit in with all of the other heavy metal stuff too. Yeah. Um, but he's he's a he's a great composer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um I'm interested to go back to uh, some of the earlier works here and in particular mm-hmm. Grim Fandango, which has such a strong musical legacy um, aesthetic legacy all around, really every mm-hmm. aspect of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's, let's give this a listen. This is Campaneros by Peter McConnell from Grim Fandango. <laughs> This next track is a request from Loki from the forum, who says, Dark Souls 3 music is awesome, but the best boss music is not the Nameless King, fight me. Uh, that is in his own words. That is uh, obviously referring to uh, when James Carter requested the Nameless King theme in a previous sound of play. But uh, continuing in Loki's words here, it's the Abyss Watchers. This piece works so wonderfully with the moves of the actual boss, the large sweeping arcs of fire and steel like a brush that paints a story of sacrifice and brotherhood. The desperation can be felt in the strings, and the lamentation of the choir invokes the end of a long road traveled. It perfectly embodies what Dark Souls 3 means to the series as a whole, and, in my opinion, tops off what is a thoroughly amazing soundtrack. Yes, indeed, this is Abyss Watchers by Yuka Katamura from Dark Souls 3. And it's been interesting to watch the Dark Souls series develop mm-hmm. ever since the first game. I mean, Dark Souls 1, uh, to a lesser extent, Demon's Souls, became kind of a runaway hit, much bigger than anyone ever expected it to be when oh, it was yeah. clearly uh, kind of you know pitched and designed to be a cult game and nothing more than that, uh, to see it be you know, a system seller now as uh, you know Bloodborne still sits atop um, you know, some of the most highly recommended PS4 games on, on many folks' lists, and uh, Dark Souls 3 and uh, even Dark Souls 2, back when that released, were big sellers, uh, any, way bigger than anyone would have expected them to be a few years back. But the fun thing about Dark Souls, um, yes, we could say this about Bloodborne and Dark Souls 3, is that it still feels like they don't know what to do with the budget that they've been given. I don't mean that as a, uh, um, you know, in detriment to, uh, to the games at all. Like I think that they are, are beautifully designed and directed mm-hmm. and composed and everything about them. Like I, I just continue to love this series as much as I ever have, but it feels like, like a kid who 
you know, just got out of school and was uh, and stumbled upon some success and was just showered with money. And mm-hmm. now is like the excitement of having that much money and resources and ability hasn't worn off. Yeah. And so there's just so much excess in everything um, mm-hmm. that the Dark Souls series has been doing recently. They've been uh, so like overly lavishly decorated. Yeah, because whenever you boil down the Dark Souls games, mm-hmm. they're really like they're incredibly well designed. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure a huge amount of the development goes into them designing everything and getting everything just right. Mm-hmm. But really the the difficulty of them really means that there really isn't a like if you knew exactly what you were doing, mm-hmm. then you could get through the Dark Soul games somewhat quickly. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you can and obviously there's a million different ways to play it and there's so much to come back to. But the game itself, I don't think requires nearly as much money as, as getting thrown at them. Yeah. I think that's what I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah. And so they they have more time and money to uh, to put into just really lavish compositions um, Mm -hmm. on the soundtracks. I'm still like absolutely in love with the Bloodborne soundtrack. I think it's pretty much perfect for what it is. And then, you know, Dark Souls 3, just the the level of set dressing in each of the locations is just so extreme, almost overcrowded, but I I love it. I, I just love being in those worlds and thinking that, you know, it's like uh, like getting together with the Dungeons and Dragons buddies, and if somebody had had you know years to prepare a dungeon and and to you know prepare for every little detail, like it would be this elaborate and this complex mm-hmm. and this uh, this over decorated and crowded mm-hmm. in a way. No, that's but, actually that's that, it's interesting you say that because that's kind of going to the music of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely inspired a lot by baroque music because Mm -hmm. baroque music is very ornate and over the top Mm -hmm. and everything from that baroque time is very ornate and over the top and overly decorated uh so it kind of translates into the music but of course the music's a lot more scary than music from the baroque (laughs) era is um but there's even uses of organs and things like that Mm -hmm. so the other tracks uh this one is all about the all about the chorus Yep, it's got choirs, it's got uh, violins kind of leading the way. Mm-hmm. So, without further ado, Abyss Watchers by Yuka Kitamura.
end to uh, completely change our course again. <laughs> uh, we have the exact opposite song. This For is uh, from Animal Crossing Wild World. Matthew, do you want, do you want to introduce this one? <laughs> sure. Um, this is The Able Sisters by Kazumi Tataka. Uh, and it's, it's the song that plays when you go to the Able Sisters shop. There are mm-hmm. a couple of little porcupine sisters that make clothes, <laughs> you know, as compared to, you know, the... The horrible demons and and fire and, right. and despair. Uh, it's Animal Crossing. Yeah, it's a cute little track of uh, a very pleasant music, kind of homely. Mm. Homey. You know, it's like living in a little neighborhood with all your friends. I was interested in, uh, when I was listening to this track earlier, is that um, it seems to be, it's broken into very hard, uh, you know, stereo channels. Um, the instruments are either entirely to the left or entirely to the right. And I'm wondering if that's due to the fact that like, you know, um, Kazumi Tataka just preferred the mix sounding that way or whether that was uh, a limitation on the DS. Yeah. I actually don't know. It's two, it's two speakers are, Mm -hmm. um, are, you know, somewhat close to each other, just on opposite sides of the screen. And so I, I wonder if, uh, if that was a designed around the hardware in that way. I think it is because subtlety doesn't play too well whenever you're listening to just the speakers. Yeah, yeah. So you have to have a very extreme to one or the other. But I actually don't know much about the the hardware of the DS. Hmm. Um, I know it's definitely, it's more limited certainly than, you know, like a, a modern phone or a, or a, a yeah. Vita or something like that. Or a 3DS even, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I love the the composition of it and yeah. uh, Kazumi Tataka is one of my favorite composers uh, overall because he always just does kind of weird stuff with his music <laughs> yeah. um, but this one is just very pleasant uh, and brings back a ton of memories of every time a new Animal Crossing comes out and I play through it a mm-hmm. lot that I, don't, I just really like this track I like that the Animal Crossing series has maintained a very consistent musical yes. legacy through its various uh, kind of almost confusing console, because it um, started off on the N64 in Japan, mm-hmm. and then the version that the uh, Western audiences are more familiar with on the GameCube is more or less a straight port. Mm-hmm. Um, such a straight port that if you were to load up the game and then mm-hmm. um, at any point I was after you were the, mention this. Yeah, after the uh, Nintendo logo, you can take the disc out, and the entire game, well, you know, with a couple of, of exceptions of... Uh, uh, activities and places that you can't go, but the entire game can play from the RAM of the system, mm-hmm. which is it's so much smaller <laughs> than, than what the GameCube needs. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, the music wasn't really upgraded from the, uh, N64 version to the GameCube version, even though I had a little bit more elbow room to include, um, some more lavish compositions on a disc. Uh, they, they chose to, uh, keep the same instruments and stuff for the most part. I don't know if there are any little differences, but um, and then those those uh, particular instruments have remained fairly consistent throughout the entire series, and that sound. Um, so in a way, like it still sounds a bit like an N sixty four game, and I think that really works in the series' favor in particular. Definitely, the uh, Wild World has it's very similar. In a lot mm-hmm. of ways to the N64, but I feel like the tracks are more fleshed out because if you listen to the N64 tracks, they're a lot kind of, or, or rather the 
in my mind, the GameCube. Mm-hmm. The original Animal Crossing, if you listen to those tracks, they're a lot more like kind of weird and wonky. And mm-hmm. then I feel like they have a little more direction in, in Wild World. And then in the uh, New Leaf, the 3DS one, mm-hmm. it, a lot of the tracks are just the Wild World tracks, but on the 3DS. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure this one's the same, although there's like a, a kind of remixed version for a third Able Sister that appears in New Leaf. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the, the hat shop owner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is uh, The Able Sisters by Kazumi Tataka. From Animal Crossing Wild World on the DS. tracks left this next track is an interesting one from Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite composers actually a composer that we featured on the very first episode of sound of play way way back in the day in sound of play one this is uh done by kyle gabler for world of goo Uh, do you want to take us through this one a little bit it's kind of interesting listening to the track itself because Mm -hmm. i really wanted to play a track from world of goo just because i really love that soundtrack yeah yeah. but it's kind of weird listening to the songs themselves because in the game they're so mixed and matched depending on what you're doing in the level and which level you're on that uh that it's almost sounds weird listening to it all together because um, it's been a while since I played World of Goo, but I think each, like, each, there's the different worlds, and then in each world, mm-hmm. I think the different levels have basically, like, a different part of the song, it kind of mm-hmm. feels like, listening through this. Uh, I could be completely wrong about that, so. Uh, but it's just, it's it's a very eclectic mixture of a song within just the song itself. Uh, it goes from having kind of like a, like a wah-wah pedal playing and, um, like this intense kind of drums and, and bass in the background to being this calm, like almost like spy thriller kind of music yeah, with the yeah. piano. And <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah. It's got that, uh, what I can only refer to as the shaft guitar. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the wah wah. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. But, and then it also kind of changes its sound quite a bit throughout the, the song. It doesn't mm-hmm. stay consistent at any point. Mm-hmm. Um, it introduces a lot of new elements. It uh, builds in its intensity at quite a few points as well. Um, so it's it definitely keeps me on my toes when I'm listening to it. Mm-hmm. But like I say, I'm a big fan of Kyle Gabler. I, I do like World of Goo. I think he really comes into his own in the Little Inferno soundtrack. But um, all of his stuff is pretty consistently brilliant. And so I do continue to seek him out. And I'm sure that we'll feature lots more of him in the future. But until then, this is a this is regurgitation pumping station by Kyle Gabler from World of Goo.
one track left, but before we do that, uh, remember to please venture over to our forum at canandrince.com slash forum, or you can hit us up on Twitter at canandrince, or you can check us out on Facebook, any number of places. I'm sure you can hunt us down and find us. Uh, you can request your favorites, and we'll continue to include a selection of those in the playlist for each regular Sound of Play podcast. I say regular because we've got something interesting coming up, not next time. That is another one of a uh, of Leon's as we kind of alternate hosting duties, but the uh, issue 60, um, this is Sound of Play 58 in Sound of Play 60, we are going to be doing another two-hour, one-series special, this Ooh. time on the Donkey Kong Country series. Ooh, that'll be a good one. Yeah, kind of primarily sticking with the uh, one through three back on the Super Nintendo, venturing over a little bit into the uh, Returns series on the Wii and Wii U. But uh, spending a lot of time with David Wise and Eveline Fisher. Mm-hmm. So that'll be 
uh, myself and Darren Gariette taking you through all of that. And uh, I'm really looking forward to going through some of that old Donkey Kong Country music. So um, yeah, I just wanted to give you all a heads up that that is happening in in, uh, two sounds of play time. Mm -hmm. I would like to uh, thank our guest, Matthew, and uh, wanted to ask if you had anything that you wanted to plug any uh, oh, your, yeah. your channel of course and any other yeah. appearances or, or things that you wanted to get some ears on well i uh yep i'm major third just search major third on youtube mm-hmm. um at major underscore third on twitter um my a lot of my stuff is on uh the overclocked remix podcast hmm. um they i do a, a a portion for them that usually goes to my youtube channel a little bit later uh, so I want to plug those guys. I love those guys, but I think that's about it. Uh, just, yeah. Major third, major underscore third on Twitter. Cool. Yeah. I definitely, uh, recommend you check out the major third channel. If you enjoy what we do here, because it is, uh, it is similar, but a little bit more musically inclined, um, <laughs> with a little bit more terminology and training in that area. And so mm-hmm. I always find, uh, your stuff to be very, well-polished, very succinct, and very informative. Well, thank you. Yeah, so thanks again for coming on the show. Definitely. No, that was a lot of fun. All right, so our last track for today is something, again, completely different. This comes from Kraken Unleashed from the forum, who says, This surprising game, which began as the crossover of Shin Megami Tensei and Fire Emblem, became so much more than that. Tokyo Mirage Sessions Sharp FE is... In its final form, a JRPG based on the Japanese idol and acting industries. I'd love to see this covered by Kane and Rince, but as it's a JRPG, a spinoff of two long game franchises and likely to be overlooked, I have little hope for the main podcast, so I will at least show <laughs> off its music. Hey, never say never, buddy. I'd love to cover it at some point. Befitting the idol theme of the game, music is a huge part of what makes the game special, and the way it's used in-game I found to be very unique. All the music of the game is produced by Avex Group, which is known for the Love Live idol anime and rhythm games. I hear the main composer, Yoshiaki Fujisawa, had difficulty in making the music as he was used to TV music and not video games, though his work is still brilliant. However, my chosen track is not one of his, but rather one of the many J-pop songs sung by your party members, Kiria, in the game. I almost chose Reincarnation as the song which is also sung by her, And while it's my favorite, it's also the one on almost all the promotional trailers, so it's easy to find, though I still recommend people listen to it. They are not just one-time use tracks. Rather, each song is performed once at the end of the character side quest as the climax of that side quest, and it becomes a character revealing piece. Secondly, when walking around town, various shops will play the various songs you have encountered, really selling the fact that your friends are becoming widespread idols. Thirdly, and most importantly, Each musical performance becomes a special move when in the battle system. So in the case of the Labyrinth, a huge blizzard erupts on the stage when it's activated, while Kyria sings the heart-rending chorus line. It's a wonderful piece, and one that I let run in full, not skipping, every time it appears in battle. Yes, so this is The Labyrinth by Hiroshi Yoshida. It's arranged by Minako Doi and vocal by Yoshino Nanjo. And this is done um, for Tokyo Mirage Sessions Sharp FE, which is the Shin Megami Tensei Fire Emblem crossover JRPG for the Wii U, which we just uh, which is mentioned in the correspondence there. And I'm uh, I'm interested to play this 
it's one that I'm not sure I'm uh, ready to spend full price on, but <laughs> it's it definitely does look interesting, and it looks like um, it kind of like a hidden Persona game is what I've been hearing. Uh, no, that's who have what he's. Mm-hmm. What that that description sounds very Persona esque. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm look if you're if this is your thing, then go for it. It's mm-hmm. it's this isn't really my thing. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but if you love this, then love the heck out of it. Hmm. Uh, do you mean the the game in particular or the song? Well, I mean both. Uh, I I mean I like I like Fire Emblem. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never really played the SMT games, but just the whole like idols and j-pop and that kind of whole part i'm just not really into so i can't really say much about the song yeah yeah i i'm i'm kind of on the same page i do really like the persona series just because you know the journey of of friends across the countryside and you know battling Mm -hmm. demons and stuff like there's a lot of good character building to get behind and stuff like that and so that's kind of that would be my entry point into a game like this uh, rather than having any experience with the you know, J-pop culture necessarily. Mm. But I, I do think it's interesting that they use the music as kind mm-hmm. of like allegory for the power that these characters are gaining. Um, mm-hmm. No, I, I do like that. Mm-hmm. That is, that's really interesting. Yeah. Like yeah. The, the usage of, of just straight up playing a J-pop song whenever you're using like a, a spell, essentially. That's yeah. really, that's kind of cool. Yeah. As if the, uh, the singing talent translates directly over into their, this magical prowess or their uh, their combat abilities. Um, so it's a neat idea and one that I'm I'm sure I'll get around to checking out at some point in the future. And uh, you know, never never count it out of a Canon Rinse episode. I think it's different enough from its respective series that we don't necessarily need to do the entire build up. But again, <laughs> I can't promise anything because that is uh, um, you know JRPGs are very long time commitments, and we uh, have to have a few people on the team at least that have played it so you know maybe at some point in the future but until then this is the labyrinth from tokyo mirage sessions sharp fe for fire emblem presumably all right so we will see you next week and uh look forward to sound of play 60 where we'll be doing some donkey Kong music until then take it easy
Yo y con... 